Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, welcome to Siempre Palante. Welcome, mi gente, to Siempre Palante, Always Forward, a podcast that is culture-driven, focused on familia, overcoming adversity, and legacy. I'm your host, Hirado Luis Alvare. Gracias for listening. In this episode, you will hear from a Latina pioneer who defied the odds documenting the Latino experience through the power of the pen and music. Her Puerto Rican influences mixed with growing up in New York City provided a perspective that schools did not teach. From Salsa 101 to Chinese Cubans, I introduce to you CEO of Aurora Communications, Aurora Flores. Well, first and foremost, I want to thank you because I came to you with an idea more than a year ago. It's very humbling because I've always looked at your body of work and what you have done for our people as an inspiration. Yo admiro eso mucho. We need more Aurora Flores. Siempre pa'lante, always forward is about culture. It's about people, whether they're in the front or behind the scenes. You have been in every role. You're not just a pioneer, you're a historian, musician, activist, constantly giving back. Tell me who Aurora Flores is. Cultura con sabrosura <laughs> is so important for people to know their culture. And it's important to know your own culture, whatever that may be. It helps you on this journey of life. It's part of your path part of your ancestors' path. It connects us. My mother was very much into the culture, into stories, into telling us stories, and through those stories, handing down a lot of the history, at least the history she knew, which was the history of Puerto Rico. In her own form of oral history, she was handing down to us why it was important to be Puerto Rican, she also handed down to us her happiness from the island, her freedom in the island. But I could also sense her sadness, her pain about the island, how the island was mistreated from the Spaniards that were there, who would rob the peasants, the hibaros, of their cows and their land stock to when the Americans came in and how they made them feel ashamed of who they were. These were really important lessons to me because I was born and raised here. She'd always ask me if in school they taught me about Eugenio Maria de Hostos. I'm like, no, ma. Some point before we went to Puerto Rico when I was 11, I thought she was just making this up to make us feel good because she was always a storyteller. Every night she'd tell us different stories and they all had like a morale to them. She'd read from the Bible too, but she would make up her own stories. So at one point I thought she was just making up these stories to make me feel better because there was a whole bunch of issues in public school, especially when I was going there. There was no bilingual education, a lot of racist teachers, but there were a lot of good teachers too. All of this was going on I found in my journey up to now that, see, when you know your culture, that's when you see the similarities with other people. When you see roots, roots don't grow straight down. They entangle, they're like one into the other. So you connect those roots. And as I got older and I studied, the church takes you in another direction. 
I'm Puerto Rican, I'm Latina. I had no choice. I was born Catolica, you know. But uh, again, in my journey and learning about other religions, not only through Christianity, but even, you know, you get into the music world, all the Jewish people I met, my teachers who were Jewish. I mean, if you grew up in New York City, everyone knows Yiddish. Schlepping, you know, I'm schlepping here and what a tuchus is. And we all know these things, which is why I loved always growing up in New York. And even in that time, because the public schools were diverse. I had a friend in school who was Greek. I still remember her name, Calliope Sapanakis. We used to hang in elementary school. When I got to college and I discovered someone like Joseph Campbell, he came from the same roots. This man was in Catholic, Christian, Jesuit follower. And then he got into cowboys and Indians, but he was rooting for the Indians. And through Native American culture and Native American studies, he went around the world. He's got a book, The Power of Myth. And he connected all these mythologies to these cultures. We all have these similarities. He has a book called the hero of a thousand faces. And we all go through this hero journey where we leave behind everything where we came from and go on another path or else extend that path. But still we are not the same. We come through as different people. Culture helps you maintain a foundation, a foundation that you keep with you. We got people like you on the forefront. You're telling it not how it is, but what it is. I like what you're telling me about mom and the stories because I can relate on that with my mom telling me stories about Cuba. My parents left Cuba in the early 70s. They sacrificed everything, Aurora, for me and my sister to get an education because they believe that the investment they were making, the sacrifice, we will be successful. And that was their American dream, selfless. And I feel that that grind, that hustle, that determination, I know that those are the things that I see in the stories you tell. So who helped shape that? Who helped shape your view of culture growing up? It was my mother. I was about 13 and now I'm in junior high school. I'm in the orchestra. So after school, I went to their house for an hour to rehearse. They had a piano. Then I came home. So I'm making arrangements. I'm on the phone. My mother is listening. So, la que no sabe inglés, <laughs> all right? The one that they never knew English, when I hang up the phone, she comes into my room. She says, oye, que tú le decía a esa amiguita tuya que tú eres Spanish. Tú no eres Spanish. And I'm like, oh, shit, she's here. I guess they must have asked me, like, where are you from? And immediate, what I told them, I'm Spanish. I didn't say I'm Puerto Rican. But my mother caught it right away. And she walked in there. She said, I have the blood of Spaniards. And I have the blood of the enslaved Africans they brought there. And I have the blood of the Indios that were murdered there. And all those bloods run through my veins. And I am proud of being Boricua. She said that they're Borinquen. Y si tú tienes vergüenza de ser puertorriqueña, entonces tú tienes vergüenza que yo soy tu mamá. Oh my God, she blew my mind. And she starts crying. So I started crying and I felt so ashamed. 
I got real radical after that. Then I'm reading Palante newspapers because they were leaving the newspapers and the projects and I'm getting more of an education. And I had already been to Puerto Rico at 11 and they had shown me the statue of Eugenio Maria de Hostos, who they told me was my great uncle and he was an abolitionist. And he came to New York and started the first independent party. And the guy who signed with him was Jose Manti. And the other guy was Arturo Schomburg. And I'm learning this. When I was younger, I remember like almost mocking my mom, thinking this was like not real. And then all of a sudden it's crashing down on me. That was my aha moment. Mom's storytelling would come full circle, impacting a young Aurora well beyond junior high school. She embraced her Borinquen roots, putting her on a path to influences that define her passion for the salsa movement. Aurora goes on to give us a history lesson on its origins, which include the impact of the U.S. embargo on Cuba. I have to tell you, many of those salseros where salsa came from, most of them went to public schools. Nicky Majero, okay, Johnny Pacheco's family, his father was a musician, but he did his first band at 13, 14 years old in junior high school with Nicky Majero, with all these other guys. They learned it in the schools and then they took it to the streets. The wonderful thing we did with salsa, it was our parents' music. A lot of it was the Afro-Cuban music. With the Cuban music, the trio music that was coming out of Puerto Rico and Cuba, that was huge. But it was Tito Puente, it was Sonora Matancera, Celia Cruz, Coltijo y Su Combo. This was all my parents' music. So I'm coming up and it's rock. We did the twist. Then I go home, my mother's putting on this record and everybody, man, vamos a la pachanga. And they're like showing me how to do this little jump with the pachanga. All the Latinos were doing pachanga. It was still the culture, but it was our culture then. And it was mixing with the culture I was coming up with. And then rock was coming up at that time. That's what I was hearing as a little girl. Like when rock started, Bill Haley and the Comet rocks. Then later on, it was the British invasion, the Beatles rock. Then now I'm a musician in school, listening to jazz and I'm listening to Symphony Sid. Frankly, I thought my parents' music was corny. I didn't have any of those records. I mean, when they listened to it, okay. Libertad La Malque, Tonya La Negra, Olga Guillot. And then you had the Mexican movie theaters. I grew up hearing all these cancheras. Every week we went and we spent the whole day at the movies two full-length feature films, and then two comedies, one with Tintan and the other one with Cantinfla. Then they'd have cartoons. I mean, you spent the whole day in the movie. They smoked. Behind every chair, there was a little ashtray. And people walked in there with drinks. It was like a happening. So I knew all the canchera music. I knew Miguel Aceves Mejia, Pedro Infante, Jorge Negrete. That was the man. I thought Mexican music, Hanchera was Puerto Rican music. So I'm growing up with all this. And then one day I'm listening to Symphony Sid. I hear congas and I'm like, okay, I hear congas, but the guy's singing in English and he's singing about the projects and he's singing about being a poor boy and he's singing about the Subway Joe and he's singing about riots. And I'm like, I like this. Who's Joe Patan? And then we started having all this music coming up and where were these guys? They weren't being raised in Cuba. They weren't coming from Puerto Rico. They were from here. 
But we were getting all this influence. Plus, what we were learning in school, because in school they were teaching us classical, but we were getting the basics. Then we were hanging outside. Nicky Morero told me he would hang out in the hallways, on the stairs, and they would do doo-wop, because that was going on. And then at the time, what was also great was Mongo, when he came on the scene really big, especially in the mid-50s, in the 60s, he came with these congas that had lugs, so you could tune them. He came with this Puerto Riqueño. His name was Junior. He started making those congas with the lugs. He would sell them in Manny's music shop. Now, in the music shops, people selling real congas. That didn't happen before. So now you have these congas. After 1962, after the embargo, there was botanicas on every street corner. Most of the white Cubans went to Miami. Now the black Cubans and the black artists, they came to New York and the Chinese Cubanos came to New York. So in every block, you had a Chinese Cuban restaurant. And I really found them fascinating because they spoke Spanish, they spoke Mandarin, and they spoke English. Talk about coming to two revolutions. But you see how we have a little bit of everything in our culture, even Asian? Because we were on islands. And the Cubans, you know, there was such a stark black and white there because Cuba had the most slaves. And they were the last ones to get rid of slavery. I'm sorry, man. Why do you think that's a Chinatown in Cuba? They became the next slaves. When I tell that to people, they don't believe it. That's not true. I go, well, I got a story for you. Growing up, mi abuelo Fichicho, que Dios lo descanse, he had a good friend and his friend had a little bodega. He was Chinese. He had a nephew who was back in China, Julio Ho who was rebellious and they were like, you need to take him, get him out of here because he's getting into trouble. So he comes to Cuba and they connect my dad and Julio Ho. My dad knows no Chinese. Julio Ho knows no Spanish. That in itself, if you can't think of a cultural exchange, so los dos ends up teaching each other, end up becoming best friends for life. That's a phenomenon of Cuba that a lot of people don't understand. I have a friend, Juano, he was a salesman. So he told me he had started out at Wado at a little station and they were sending him out in Jersey and he had a partner who was a white guy, right? So they would talk and one day they come to this candy store and the candy store was owned by a little Asian man. So when they got to the candy store and the Asian man saw my friend's name, Luis Alvarez, he starts talking to him in Spanish. So Luis is talking to him in Spanish. The white guy is amazed. Luis gets the say, and when they go back to the car, the white guy tells him, I didn't know you knew Chinese. And now a word from our host, Giraldo Luis. Did you know, sabias que? Fine Art Records led by Johnny Pacheco and Jerry Masucci would become the home for elite salsa musicians. As a result, the Fania All-Stars were born. Pacheco led the way along with Larry Harlow, Willie Colon, Hector Lavoe, Celia Cruz, Tito Puente, and Eddie Palmieri, to name a few. This supergroup of salseros would change the musical landscape around the world, giving Latinos a sense of pride and identity. This year marks the 50th anniversary of their legendary performance titled Live at the Cheetah. Check it out and learn about the origins of salsa. Ya tu sabe, now back to the show. 
when we get back down to it, when I was talking about salsa, salsa is all of these influences. Salsa was made by the children of immigrants, Puerto Ricans who were not immigrants per se because we're considered American citizens, but we're like second-class citizens, which is why many Boricuas, we relate more to African-Americans here because we know what it's like for them they tricked many of the farmers out of their farmland. They cheated them out of the harvest. So many Boricuas that were here, and we lived right next door to African-Americans. We went to schools with them, in the same factories with them, in the same jails with them. To me, culture is the glue of humanity. If you really look at it, we have so many things in common. I'm curious, because you said some magical words, so now these influences are shaping you and you're like, okay, I like this. I saw it through Latin New York. I had gone to Lehman College. I'd done like two years at Lehman College. I left Lehman. I got a job in a publishing firm. So I was working my way to the publishing world. It was a big publishing house, Hardcore Brice Jovanovich. And I remember one day I go outside for lunch and I would go to this newsstand and right there on the newsstand, I see this magazine that says Latin New York. I'm this young writer and I see Latin New York. So I call them and I go there to volunteer. So after work, I would go there to volunteer. From there is where I found out that Colombia was looking for more diversity. And then they took all my credits from Lehman. So I was accepted there. I'm working at this hip magazine. Latin New York at that time was like the Rolling Stones, the young English speaking Latin. We would put cartoons that would make fun of the old-fashioned type of thinking. We'd have women dressed in T-shirts or miniskirts. It was such a creative time. Everyone working there was Puerto Rican. Everyone was young. Then I started going out and interviewing guys like Tito Puente and El Palmeri and Ray Barreto. 21-year-old Aurora dealing in these clubs with gangsters. I mean, hanging with men that are like 20 years older than me. And then from there, I jumped to Billboard magazine. Now, Billboard magazine was mainstream. I'm at the Columbia Journalism School, and the dean is telling me, you realize your byline now is going all over the world. Wow. No, I had not realized it until he told me. When I did this cover story for Billboard magazine, on the explosion of salsa, how it was all over. Now, this was 1977. It was the jazz stations and the black stations that put salsa on the map. It was the Jews y los Moreno. <laughs> because after 62, when the Cubans started coming, it was the black Cubans and the Chinese Cubanos. There were a few of the white Cubans that came that had already worked on TV and radio in Cuba. They came with that knowledge. They knew that in New York, we didn't have a Wallow. There was no 24-hour station. There was the Jewish station, WEVD, the station that speaks your language. But they were radical. From those Jews in Brooklyn, you got the Forward, which became a journalistic magazine. And they came from places in Russia, and they were very open and loud about their rights. And these Cubanos came, and they saw WEVD, and to them, es hora comunista. They want nothing to do con eso judío. That was communism. Wado at that time was not Spanish. It was an international station. You know, if you had $100, you could get an hour of time. 
and you could go on the mic and say whatever you wanted. And then the first station, like Telemundo or something, that they tried to do a show with Salceros. The producer was a young, white, Cubano. And I remember Izzy told me he brought in Frankie Dante, que era Dominicano. And Frankie Dante comes in with a beret and he's singing a song. To them, it was communist. <laughs> it was communist. They're like, he's singing what? He's singing about what? They took down the show. They didn't want to deal with us. And then when you look at Salsa by 1969-70, look at what we're talking about. I mean, Ray Barreto had a song called Together. Everybody, I know I'm black and I'm white. And it was about racial diversity that it ran through our bloods. Eddie Palmieri is singing about justicia será, justicia. When is justice going to come? Because we don't have equality. Larry Harlow is singing about Alcenio, the blackest guano you could find. He went against that whole white society of Cuban music. So here's this white Jewish guy popularizing this black guano who was really a Pan-African because he was very Pan-African. And then you had people like Ernie Agosto and La Conspiración, Tony Pavoni, La Proteta. Y estos cubanos vinieron aquí and they saw, they said, no, 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 estos boricos están locos, estos son comunistas, we're not playing this. They didn't play our music. The Latinos gave us no love because they were in control of that and they were not going to give us any love. We did it on our own. So in 1977, when I wrote this article in Billboard that was front page, because now we had Waddle. Now we had WBNX. When I write this article, I said that they had graveyard programming. That was in the title. Okay, so that week, that was like a big uproar in the industry. And that week, the program director of WBMX came to see me. I'll never forget his name, Mike Casino. And Mike had been a musician. He was a program director. And he came to see me to tell me I was absolutely right. He wanted to bring more salsa into the station, more salsa programming. We talked. We became friends. BNX turned into Radio Hit. That was a big salsa station. Wow. Now, by the end of that week, I get a call and I hear this very resonant, deep male voice. Jose Baronil, quiero hablar con Aurora Flores. And I'm like, oh, sí, esta Aurora. He opens up. Yo te quiero decir, I came, I called you to tell you, tú eres una estupida. You don't know what you're talking about. While I am the station owner of Wado, I am never playing that music of those dirty, long hair, black, communist Puerto Ricans. And he hung up the phone. And I was like, I don't believe this. Fania would send boxes to the station of the records. He would take a letter opener and he would scratch the vinyl so none of the DJs could play it. That's how much they thought we were communists and they didn't want this music. They weren't going to play it. Now you have another set of Cubans that hate Puerto Ricans because now we stole their music. Aurora talks about the cultural bond of Latinos, Blacks, and Jews that helped put salsa on the map. Latin New York is instrumental in her going to Columbia University and landing her a job at Billboard magazine. She stayed true to who she was, and her stories reflected it. Todo tiene su final as Aurora shares about overcoming some of her life's toughest challenges, how she stays balanced, and what legacy means to her. What's one of the things that you had to encounter, but also the advice you can give from that? What helped you? 
overcome that challenge? I think I always had my own sense of inner strength. And I think my mother helped me have that a lot. She was a big influence in my life. So it was hard when she passed away five years ago. That was really tough. Then 14 years ago when I got breast cancer, that was tough. Having my son and then having been divorced while he was little and having to raise him as a single mom, that was tough. But life is not easy. Life is tough. But life is also beautiful. And there are moments when life can be so easy. (laughs) It's a balance. It's a journey. My mother's stories, books have always helped me, books and music. At my lowest, I go to books, I go to music. I'm spiritual, I chant. Putting on incense helps me. Feeling that I'm doing a decojo in my house helps me because it's metaphoric. My house is clean and my spirit is clean. And it just makes me feel better that I can move on. It's a psychological thing, but it's also a spiritual thing. What does legacy mean to you? Legacy is history. Legacy is culture. Legacy is music and stories and poetry and art, and all of those things are legacy. People look at money and possessions. You can't take those things with you. You take what you leave behind. That's the only thing. You take experiences, the memories, the good people, the good food, the music, the moments of lucidity, the moments of epiphany, the moments of sadness, of tragedy. That's what you take with you. Gracias, Aurora, for blessing us with your story and the history lesson on Latino culture. For all my listeners, don't forget to rate and review the show. Five stars and a little love go a long way. Check the show notes for more info on where you can find Aurora via social media. Next week, we have CEO of Decora Digital and founder of the New Village Music Festival in NYC, Deiso El Afro-Caribeño. Tune in and tell a friend. Hasta la próxima. Palante.